0: Welcome to Sunday Sermons from the Williamsburg Community Chapel, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. Let's grab our Bibles and open up to the book of Luke, chapter 11, verse 33, looking through chapter 12, verse 3. I'll read verses 45 and 46 for us now, as we prepare to hear from Dale South, as he helps us continue in our Linton series titled, Listening. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers.
1: Well, this morning, I want
0: to sort of home in on
1: verse 45 of Luke chapter 11 as we continue on in our series on the discipline of listening And in verse 45, we see one of the experts of the Jewish law said to Jesus, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us. Now, we need to ask the question, I think, does God's word ever insult you? Are you ever offended by what God says to you? Um, how, How do you respond if and when? God does uh, insult or offend you. How should followers of Jesus respond to that? Uh, I'm convinced that this passage actually has a little bit more to it. It's it's like one big unit here. So I'm going to go back and read uh, verses 33 through 36 as well. Jesus says, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, So that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. And when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, have no part of dark, but it will be wholly bright. As when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So, I believe this is all connected to what Martha read earlier, as we see here. There, I want to get right into the big idea this morning, because I, I hope this is what we can kind of take away uh, from here this morning, from our passage. And that is that when God's Word offends us, it's a sign that, that we're viewing life through a distorted lens, that, that, that the light coming in is not as light as we may think that it is. Uh, how many of you here this morning have had cataract surgery? Okay, others probably are going to be having it soon. I, I, I got, I'm watching, my optician my is watching one on mine or both eyes says, you know, we'll keep letting it grow a little more. Um, but the, the Mayo Clinic says a cataract is a clouding of the lens of the eye, which is typically clear, it's supposed to be clear. But for people who have cataracts, seeing through cloudy lenses is like looking through a frosty or fogged up window, okay? And so sometimes the lens that we're looking through distorts things for us. And our passage this morning begins with Jesus using this language, a figurative language about our eyes. He says, your eye is the lamp of your body. So a healthy eye is going to fill your body with light. But a, but a bad or unhealthy eye fills your body with darkness. And then Jesus goes on in verse 35, and he, he adds these words. He says, therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Because when there's a gradual kind of a, a worsening of our vision, sometimes we don't realize that we're not seeing as much, and things are getting darker, but it's, it's subtle at times, and we don't realize it. So this, that statement about not being careful lest the light in you be darkness sort of sets up the next part where Jesus gives these seven woes that he announces to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are these zealous followers of Jesus, or excuse me, not of Jesus, but of the Jewish law there. And then there are also these lawyers, or some say scribes or experts in the law, who interpreted the commandments then for the, the people but what, what does that word woe mean? Uh, woe literally means, in the Greek, alas. And in Luke's gospel, Jesus consistently uses this word woe me, in, in contrast to the word blessed. Now, in, in Luke chapter 6, 20 to 26, I want to go there just for a moment because it's, it's uh, a very clear indication of that contrast. We see Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, woe to you who are rich. Blessed are you who hunger now, but woe to you who are full now. Blessed are you who weep now, woe to you who laugh now. Blessed are you when people hate you, woe to you when all people speak well of you. So what Jesus calls a blessing, I think most of us are inclined to call a curse. And what Jesus pronounces woe over, I think most of us are predisposed to call it a blessing. So what's up with that? I think this could be a very big clue that you and I are probably not viewing things through the same lens that Jesus views things. Jesus is showing how how viewing the world and viewing God and viewing the world through a cloudy lens, this gets our our values all twisted around from his values. And then Jesus' interaction here with, with these very religious Pharisees and legal experts and Luke 11, uh, like 39 to 52, these illustrate what he meant by the light in you being darkness, because these were thought to be very enlightened spiritual men. And our our passage begins with the imagery of of light and darkness in verse 33 of chapter 11, and it ends with the imagery of light and darkness in 12.3, when Jesus says, "'Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light.'" And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So I'm pretty sure here that Luke, the author of this gospel, intended his readers to see a thread running through the whole passage. He says, the, the eye is the lamp to your body, the seven woes, who, what is said in the dark will be heard in the light. See, it's all one connected unit. So in verses 33 to 36, Jesus is using the the human eye, a physical illustration, object lesson, to communicate spiritual truth. And he says, you know, your eye is the lens through which you see life, which you see God, which you see the world. We see that through our eyes. And if that lens is clouded with a cataract or some other infirmity that impairs your vision, then what you think is light may actually be darkness. And Jesus is addressing here, I believe, the topic of what cultural scientists would call worldview. Worldview may be an unfamiliar term to, to some, but I'm going to give a very basic, simple definition this morning, and that is that a, that a worldview is the lens through which we see and interpret our world. Okay, That's simple. It's the lens through which we see and interpret our world. So I Our worldview is our best effort to explain reality. It's our best attempt to try to make sense of life that's going on around us that sometimes is very hard to make sense of. And we can get to the heart of someone's worldview by by hearing their answers to several of life's big questions. We're not going to go deeply into that today, but I'll just share a couple of those questions. Like, how did we get here? What are we here for? How can we know what is good and what happens to us when this life ends? Those, those are pretty much questions that will help us ascertain our own or someone else's worldview. We're going to devote a whole week to this topic of worldview uh, when we get to the chapel-wide study, which is going to correspond to the series of the discipline of being sent. That's going to be the week of April 7th beginning, and it's going to end the week of May 19th. And I just encourage you who are in a small group, to participate in that chapel-wide study. And if you're not in a small group, I hope you'll consider getting in one, for the, at least for those seven weeks of time. And if you're interested in leading a small group just for those seven weeks, uh, contact me. But back, back to this idea of God's Word insulting us. Now, whether, whether we're insulted by God's words or we're insulted by other people's words— it really does ultimately boil down to uh, a conflict of worldviews. It's a conflict of how we see life and we see the world. And since every one of us sees our world, we see God, we we see ourselves, we see other people through cloudy lenses that distort reality, we're going to see and we're going to actually be a lot of offended people. But as followers of Jesus, we need to go where Jesus goes to know who he is. And we need to hear his insulting words that offend us so that we can start to see ourselves and our world through his lens. Most of us don't probably ceremonially wash our hands before we eat. Most of us don't tithe our dill and mint and rue and all kinds of herbs. We don't leave those in the offering boxes. We don't become ceremonially unclean by by visiting a cemetery, And, and we don't build tombs to honor dead prophets. So since those practices are so far removed from our experience, it's easy for us to let those seven woes of Jesus just roll right off of our ears and in the process, let ourselves off the hook. You see, the woes that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and experts in the law insulted them, highly insulted them. Now, those words don't insult me at all. But if we're honest, uh, there are other words spoken by Jesus or other words found in the Bible that at times do insult and offend us. And the reason Jesus' words offend us and the reason anyone else's words offend us have to do directly to our worldview. Now, one of the big questions that we talked about that I want to focus on a little bit for the next few minutes it helps discover a person's worldview as how can we know what is good? The sense that we are to be good, to be a good person, I, I believe, is pretty much hardwired into our very beings. You know, wh- whether you're a Christian, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Muslim, a Hindu, a pagan, a secularist, an agnostic or an atheist, everyone generally shares this value that we're supposed to be good people, we're supposed to be a good person. We're not supposed to harm other people. They agree with that commonality that we're supposed to be good, but there's a lot of difference that comes in there in these different groups as to what it means to actually be good. How are we to be good? How are we to address our failures when we know we're not good? Good, But everybody wants to be good, and most of us want to be thought of as a good person. With that background, let's take a closer look at Jesus and his dinner conversation with these very religious Pharisees and these experts in the law. Because to say that everyone at that table was highly committed to being a good person is probably an understatement. These were supposed to be the best of the best. And yet Jesus' understanding of what makes someone a good person was very different from everybody else's at that dinner table. You know, Jesus' idea of what it means to be a good person is often very different than yours and mine as well. So in addition to the 613 commandments written in the Torah, that would be the first five books of the Jewish Hebrew Bible uh, known as the law. In addition to those 613, there, there were some oral traditions and other kind of uh, oral laws that were passed down and uh, sort of compiled into another book called the Talmud. And that book contained about uh, 1,500 or more extra rules and regulations that were not found in those original 613 of the Torah. So in the worldview of the Pharisees and of these uh, experts in the law, the lens at which they viewed things, they would answer the question, what does it mean to be good? How can we know what is good? They would say, well, a good person... Is one who obeys the 613 commandments of the Torah as well as the 1500 commandments of the Talmud. It would be a full time job just trying to remember, especially with my memory, what all those 21, 2200 commandments were. But hand washing that we see here in Luke 11 was was not uh, in the Torah. That was a part of this extra-biblical oral law and tradition that had been passed down. So we're not talking about washing with soap and water here. We're talking about a ceremonial washing where you fill a cup with water, you pour it on one hand, then you fill up, and then you pour it down over the other hand. And when I went to Jerusalem, almost all of the bathrooms had one of these little cups in there so that you could wash your hands, pouring the water over Uh, each one separately there. So through their lens, what good people do who love God and love his word is they ceremonially wash their hands before they eat and sometimes before they go to bed and when they wake up in the morning. Now, here we have Jesus at the table with these guys. Uh, These Pharisees and religious leaders, and Jesus has probably seen every other one of these guys pour the water in the cup, down their hand, take the cup, pour it down the other hand. He's seen them do it, and yet he does not do the ceremonial washing. In fact, there's no indication here that Jesus even washed his hands at all. And he'd been out in the crowds and he'd been touching people and casting out demons and healing sick people. And Pastor Pastor Rich and I were sharing the other day, and and he envisions Jesus coming in there, dipping his unwashed hand into a bowl of hummus to the horror of everybody else around him. I don't think they would want to eat that afterwards. Um, And then Jesus, after he had done that, the Pharisees and the religious leaders looked at him probably with their jaws agape, and it seemed to them that Jesus was just absolutely flaunting the law. To them it was saying, he's obviously not a good person. You see, to the, to the religious leaders, Jesus says, now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Now we know Jesus is not talking about their dishwashing skills. He's referring to their inner lives because he says, you are full of greed and wickedness. They are the cup that is clean on the outside where people can see, but Jesus is saying on the inside where people don't see, you guys are pretty messed up. Jesus proceeds then to speak these seven woes, these contrast to blessings to these religious leaders. Jesus is saying, you guys think that you should be blessed because you tithe even down to the smallest herbs that you grow. And and you think that you're blessed to have the best seats in the synagogue. And, And you think that you're blessed to have all these people in the marketplace greet you with honor. But because you think these things are what make people good, While you're missing the truth about God's love and about his justice, you're really revealing that you're wretched on the inside. The light in you is darkness. So being in the presence of a dead person, according to the Jewish law and the oral traditions, made a person ceremonially unclean. Definitely something the Pharisees wanted to avoid whenever they could. And then Jesus insults them by saying that that they themselves are like tombs, like dead people within them that have just been whitewashed, which makes it dangerous for other people because other people come near them and they're getting unclean by them, but they don't even realize that they're tombs. He says, Jesus, that's what you guys are doing without realizing it. You're making everybody else unclean because the teaching inside of you is dead. And at this point, one of the experts in the law said, Jesus, you know, we do those things too. Uh, So when, like, when you insult the Pharisees, you know, you're kind of insulting us too. And Jesus says, You're absolutely right. Thanks for the reminder. (laughs) Woe to you, lawyers. Woe to you, experts in the law. Because Jesus knew the very people that he was dining with around this table would plot to kill him just as their ancestors from the beginning to the end of the Old Testament had killed people who spoke words from God that they found insulting and offensive. You see, God is an equal opportunity insulter. Uh, He would pass any test of diversity Equity and inclusion. He confronts the distorted worldviews of every human being in any time, in any place, in any culture. Everyone, from the most conservative religious zealot to the most anti religious liberal, has a sense that it is important to be a good person. And they may define it differently, but unless they're a sociopath, They agree it's important to be good. But whatever their definition of good is, sooner or later we come to realize it's just not always good. And not being a good person is really not a good look. So we see in the very early pages of Scripture when Adam and Eve broke the one command that God gave them and they ate the fruit that God had told them not to eat, Their first response was to cover themselves up, right, with fig leaves. That's that's our default. That's my default, right, to to cover up when we fail to be good. I have to fight that default response because that's the one that comes most naturally to me. And we probably never say it out loud, but I think we may think it inside, and that is, you know, if I can't be good, I can at least try to look good. And Jesus pointed to the Pharisees and the lawyers as looking good on the outside, but not really being good on the inside. And the word for this is hypocrisy. It literally comes from the Greek. It's the idea of putting on a mask and acting a part It was really what the actors in a Greek play, they were called hypocrites. They were actors. So you and I are not hypocrites because we fail to live up to a standard of what is good. That's just what it is to be a weak, fallen, sinful human being. When I have this standard of what's right and what's good, and I try to aim for that, and I miss that, that is not to be a hypocrite. I become a hypocrite, however, when I pretend that I'm living up to that standard better than I am. And when I want other people to think that I'm a better person than I really am. And you know, when those things happen, it doesn't feel good. When we can't be good, and when we're not doing such a good job of looking good, and people see something on the inside, sometimes we're tempted to say the heck with it. Can't be good, can't look good by golly, I'm going to feel good. So we look for those dopamine hits, something that's going to give us some temporary relief. And for the Pharisees, that came from getting the best seats in the synagogue. It came from having people greet them in the marketplace with honor. It came with a little bit of a one-upsmanship. Well, I'm a better rule keeper than those guys over there are. Even if I'm not perfect, I'm at least better. Better. And for some of us, we may share some of those, but it may be even something as simple as numbing out and trying to get to the next level of our video game or drinking the next glass of wine or taking the next toke of weed or making the next click on the computer. Sometimes for me, it's as simple as getting the next donut. Before long... We realize that being good, looking good, feeling good uh, are not turning out to be like we'd hoped. We're falling short in each one of those categories. Now, Jesus offended the religious leaders by saying, you're not as good as you need to be. You're not even as good as you think you are. You're certainly not as good as you want other people to believe that you are. Jesus says, you guys are missing the good news. The good news of the gospel that I embody. Because you're looking at God, you're viewing the world through a cloudy, distorted lens. In fact, what you think of as light inside of you is actually darkness. Now, Does God's word insult or offend you in any way here this morning? I certainly hope it does. Because if it doesn't, you're never going to get rid of your cloudy, distorted lens. You see, the offense of God is the way that we're called to change our lenses. It's the way we're called to have to see things from a different light, to see things the way Jesus sees things. Where might Jesus be saying to you this morning? You're looking through a cloudy, distorted lens. The light inside you is darkness. You're not as good of a person as you really think you are. Might it be teachings about material possessions? They hit a lot of us pretty strongly. As we talked about last week, is the idea of giving away your resources to someone that you think is undeserving that offensive to you? How about loving your enemies? How about your views of sexuality, gender, and marriage? Does God's word offend you or insult you in those topics? How about dealing with immigrants or pride or the demand that we seek his kingdom above earthly political reigns? See, do do those things offend you or do you just let them roll off your ears as if they never were spoken at all? See, every time that we find ourselves insulted or offended by God's word, it's an invitation to look at our worldviews. I'm not saying simply look through the worldview. I'm saying to examine the lens itself, to see where it's distorted, to see where it's cloudy, to see where it's missing the truth. And God's insulting words reveal where our lenses are distorted, and he invites us to correct our lenses by seeing things through the lens of the gospel, because the gospel of Jesus tells us that our value is not found in how good we are, it's found in how much God loves us even when we fail to be good. Even when we fail and what, what we think is light in us is darkness. Because you see, the cross is an offense, this New Testament says. The cross is a stumbling block because the cross screams out to me, you are not good enough. If you were good enough, the cross would be unnecessary. But that cross also screams out to me, you are valued and you are loved more than you could ever imagine or conjure up by making people think that you're a good person. You see, our passage concludes with Jesus' warning against the hypocrisy of trying to look like we're better persons than we really are. He says, nothing's covered up that won't be revealed. Nothing's hidden that, won't, that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light whatever you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Isn't that unsettling? You see, Jesus says our failed efforts at being good and our cover-up efforts of looking good will one day be revealed for everybody to see. We've got a saying here at the chapel that I really appreciate. It says, if you've done something wrong, Disclosure is always better than discovery. You really messed up, fess up. Don't wait for somebody else to find it after you've been trying to hide it. Faith in Jesus calls us to discuss that we are not as good as we'd like to be. not, Not to discuss, but to disclose that we are not as good as we would like to be. We need Jesus to make us good. And seeing God and ourselves through the gospel lens frees us from the fear of not measuring it up. It frees us from the fear of people someday discovering the truth about who we really are. That disclosure is something the Bible calls confession of sin. It's a confession that I don't live up to the standard of God's goodness And for that matter, I don't live up to the standard that I've placed on myself to be good. And when we confess and we turn to Jesus to follow him, he supernaturally puts his Holy Spirit inside of us. And some changes happen instantly. But the lens through which we see God and we see ourselves and we see the world, that will change in direct relation to how well we receive God's words that insult and offend us. So again, the big idea, when, we, when God's words offend us, it's a sign that we're viewing life through a distorted lens. How we respond to God's words that insult and offend us will determine how clearly we understand him and the world in which we live. I close with the words from the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Many of you know that. It's the love chapter. But Paul says in verse 12 of that chapter, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That's what we have to look forward to, brothers and sisters. But for now, we still have a dim mirror that the gospel will shed new light on as we disclose and confess our sin and humble ourselves before God, change our faulty lens in for the lens of the gospel.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Here at the Williamsburg Community Chapel, we are all about making disciples of Jesus Christ. So wherever you are in your spiritual journey, We hope you will take up this call of Jesus to follow me as we consider these disciplines for disciples.